Thank you, Stephen and Melissa. What a wonderful treatise of our inadequacy to reach God, but God coming down and providing that for us. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for for first through third graders, and we would love for you to take advantage of that as long as you pick them up afterwards. That's the deal we have with our church family, so if you're visiting with us, then we'd love for you to do that as well, take advantage of first through third grade uh, children's church if you so choose. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll be finishing up the passage in which Christ has been interacting with Nicodemus. And we have really slowed down in specifically chapter 1 and in chapter 3 as we have been really unfolding in Scripture, or the Holy Spirit's been unfolding for us through the pages of Scripture, these incredible doctrinal foundations regarding salvation and that you can't understand the rest of the gospel of John adequately unless we we recognize what's happening in John 1, 2, and 3. So I want to let you know I'm going to be preaching this morning on verses 19 through 21 as we wrap up Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus. And then we're going to take over the next couple of weeks we're going to take a little bit of a, uh, of, of a hiatus, a break from John 3, and I'm going to bring to you a series uh, on specifically the local church. We've been um, talking for the last, actually the last several years, specifically with our deacons uh, in the last year, in regards to the concept of clarifying in our mind exactly what the church is and, uh, and how, what our response should be to this amazing gathering that Jesus uh, prophesies in Matthew chapter 16, as we looked at in our membership starting point class this morning, where he says, I will build my church, and clarifying exactly what that means and the implications of what that phrase are in all of our lives. And so um, we're going to be taking just a brief uh, jaunt from that and to kind of bring the congregation uh, into that exciting conversation and as we've done really about every two years, we've spent a couple messages clarifying, but we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive beginning next week. So I'll let you know that some of you bring your John journals, and I don't want you to bring your John journals next Sunday morning and then be like, oh man, if I would have known he wasn't preaching in John, I would have brought something, I would have brought, you know, the rest of my Bible or whatever. And so, uh, so make sure you come prepared uh, next Sunday morning with that in mind. Speaking of John journals, haven't mentioned these in a while, if you're visiting with us, we have um, little John journals that are um, the scripture, just the gospel of John with the scripture on one side and, and uh, taking lines to take notes on the other. And so if you would like one of those, <clears throat> if you're a guest with us, then uh, we're, they're on the, the uh, information center on your way out. Just grab one of those, one of our gifts uh, to you, and maybe that'll help as you study through to keep track of your notes and, um, and study through scripture a little bit better. Growing up, we would, as many families do, excuse me, growing up, we would vacation with my grandparents on both my mom and my dad's side. My dad's parents lived where we lived in Anderson, South Carolina, and um, we would often go out on Lake Hartwell there with my grandparents. I have many fond memories on a boat with my grandfather uh, on Lake Hartwell in South Carolina. My uh, mom grew up, she would say, she grew up as uh, what she would lovingly refer to as a Navy brat, which means she moved everywhere, 
and usually because my grandfather was in charge. He ended up, they landed in Charleston, South Carolina. He was the commandant of the naval base for many years in Charleston. And so um, they, uh, my, my, my mom was raised some in Charleston. She went to Charleston Southern, and they landed there and retired in the Charleston, South Carolina area. And so we would go every year, and we would visit my grandmother and my grandfather in Charleston, and we loved visiting them because when they retired in Charleston, uh, old Charleston, not what it is now, but old Charleston, they, they had a beach house um, that was uh, on the Isle of Palms in Charleston, South Carolina. We'd go and we'd spend a week with my grandparents. We loved visiting them mostly. There were two things that we always dreaded. One was if you've, ever, if you've ever been to the beach, you know that if there is uh, sand, there are also these little burrs in the sand that if you walk without your shoes on in the sand enough, especially where the sand and the grass are, there are burrs that will get stuck in your feet, and it's incredibly painful, and so we would always complain, you know, that, that we wanted to, here we are at the beach, we want to go walk out in the backyard where there's sand and grass, but we'd always get these stickers in our feet. The second thing we complained about is something that you probably won't understand unless you've been to the coastal south, and it's something called palmetto bugs. Do you know what palmetto bugs are? Most people know what cockroaches are. And there's like a universal dread for the cockroach, right? But unless you've been in the coastal south, you don't know what palmetto bugs are. Think of taking a cockroach and putting it in a nuclear enlargement machine and making it about five times bigger than the normal cockroach, and giving it the ability to fly everywhere, and you get palmetto bugs. Just as invasive as the cockroach, these palmetto bugs would give me nightmares as a child. Why? Because we stayed in the basement of the, or not really the basement, the bottom floor of the beach house, And the beach house walls normally had at least one or two palmetto bugs on them every single day. And trying to get rid of them was an impossible task. And so you just had to learn to live with them. And and every year, coming from the Piedmont in South Carolina, where we grew up, to the coast, the palmetto bugs would just scare me to death. Primarily because we'd walk in, we'd get there, we'd go downstairs, we'd normally be driving all day, we'd get to the beach house, We'd go to our bedroom and we'd turn on the light. And what happens when a cockroach or a palmetto bug sees the light? They scatter. They run. And so what would happen was we'd kind of hold our breath, close our eyes, turn the light on and look real fast to see these palmetto bugs either fly or zoom underneath the bed. We'd have to go track them and we'd have to find out where they were and catch them. And when they're trying to hide in all the cracks and crevices and hope we got all of them there as we tried to sleep for that vacation. My parents didn't care. They were upstairs in a bedroom. And, uh, you know, it just gives you the heebie-jeebies even to think about it. We moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina in when I was 10, for my dad to become a church planter, in essence, and um, we had a creek in our backyard, and we would often chase, you either call them crayfish, crawdads, or mud bugs, depending on what uh, area of the country you're from. We called them crawdads, and so we would uh, go in our creek, and we would pull very slowly up a rock, and there'd be a crawdad sitting there normally, and you had to be really careful, and a lot of times let your shadow go over the rock, because if that crawdad knew that that rock was gone or it sensed light, they were gone. 
and they'd shoot themselves under another rock or a log or something, and so you'd be chasing this crayfish all over. What we see in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, is a treatise that based on your nature, you respond certain ways to darkness and light. Those palmetto bugs, those crawdads, were very comfortable in the darkness, in the cover. And in fact, if you were to expose them to light, they would very quickly run for the closest dark corner or underneath a rock. And what John wants us to see in verses 19 through 21 is that you will respond to darkness and light based on your nature. If your nature is darkness, as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, you once were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. If your nature is darkness, then you flee from the light, you run from the light, you hightail it out of there when the light comes on, and you search for darkness, you search for cover. But if you are light, then when that light is present, Your soul, your nature is drawn to the light. I'm not comparing the unsaved world to bugs, right? We can just carry that over to us as well and say mosquitoes and all of the other flying insects that we hate are attracted to light. And so by nature of Uh, of who you are, what your nature is, that then determines your response to darkness and light. And this is how John chooses to end the Jesus-Nicodemus interaction, is by saying, here is the truth. What is your response? And so let's begin reading back at verse 9 once again, so we can get the context. We'll read down through the end of verse 21. Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? How is it that someone is born again by the Holy Spirit, not by their own works? How is it that the kingdom of God is open to the entire world and not just the Jewish nation? How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have that eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the condemnation, same word. This is the judgment. Verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For, whoever, for, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, would you give us sight to see for those who have had the veil removed through regeneration, salvation, would you bring these verses to bear on our hearts that we may more fully understand the response that the unsaved world and believers have because of their nature to the truth. And if there's someone here who's not saved, may you pull back the blinders that they may see. May you turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May you breathe life into their soul that they may place their faith and trust in you alone for salvation. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Much like insects scurrying away from the light or crawdads trying desperately to find cover, this passage before us this morning reveals to us that unbelievers love darkness and run from the light because of their nature. And when their nature is exposed, they run. As we have looked at God's love displayed in verses 16, 17, and 18, and the nature of that love... So in 19, 20, and 21, we don't see the, the God's love displayed for us in this way. We see our love put on full display. And you see that in the key phrase here, people loved darkness. You have the, the, the phrase that stands in contrast to that in John chapter 3 and verse 16, God loved darkness. The world, notice it doesn't say God loved the darkness, for there's no love that God possesses for sin. But God's love is displayed to the unsaved world in general, fallen humanity in general, that that love is displayed in sending Jesus, sending his son on a mission of both love and sacrifice. But here we see our two main points that I'm going to give for you this morning. One is that unbelievers love darkness, and the second is that believers love the light. Those are the, that, that's, what, that's, what, that's how John is ending this conversation here. That's how Jesus wraps up the Nicodemus conversation, is to say, here's the gospel. And, and what I've tried to do over the past two or three weeks is to take the light of the gospel and kick it up to a million candle power to just shine it brightly. And then he ends by saying, how do you respond? Do you respond by trying to get out of here as soon as possible, squirming in your seat saying, when is he going to be done? Or does your heart resonate and be drawn towards the light of the gospel? Because your response to that reveals the nature that is in you. Mosquitoes don't run from the light. And cockroaches don't run to the light. Even though they're both flying insects. Why? Because of their nature. And here we see the two statements. Unbelievers love darkness because they are darkened in their understanding. And believers love the light because of the light of the gospel, has not only permeated their life, it is also radiating out from their life. So let's look at this first one this morning. Unbelievers love darkness, verses 19 
through 20. Unbelievers love darkness. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. I'd like to draw your attention, first of all, to that phrase, recognizing that the core of 19 and 20 is the statement, people loved the darkness. It's an explanation of why unbelievers reject Christ. The core here, people loved the darkness. But their judgment is how this, the verse begins. This is the judgment. If you want to draw an arrow, if you've got your Bible journal with you, or if you like to draw in your Bible, you can draw an arrow back from that word judgment in verse 19 back to verse 18. And every time the word condemned is used. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is that condemnation. If you were to read it in the, in the original, it traces that word all the way through. This is the condemnation of unbelief. It is the love of the darkness that is causing, that is driving the unbelief that condemns the sinner. The belief that condemned, the unbelief that condemns the sinner, this is that judgment. He's unfolding that concept of belief is not condemned and unbelief is condemned. And this is what that looks like. That's what he's saying. This is it. This is the condemnation. This is the judgment. The reason for their condemnation is that their unbelief is evidenced in their love for darkness. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. Now we need to identify three key words before we start looking at these evidences, okay? In 19 and 20. The first one is people. The second is darkness. And the third is light. What does John mean by people? What does he mean by darkness? What does he mean by light? And then the rest of the verses can be explained. People here is being drawn back to John 3.16 and the phrase, the world. And it is fallen humanity. Okay? So this isn't everybody everywhere because once you are saved, your heart no longer loves the darkness. You still have a sin nature in which that sin still tempts you, but you struggle with sin. That's what characterizes the Christian life. Some people think that the characteristic of the Christian life is perfection, and therefore when I struggle with sin, I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. But the key is that you're struggling with sin, that what's present in your heart is not this driving love and motivation for darkness. And so people here is the fallen world. That's what the word people means. Fallen world, fallen humanity, by nature, loves darkness. What is darkness? Darkness and light are used as metaphors in this passage that are referring to the actions and attitudes of the unsaved world in contrast to the actions and attitudes that would reflect God's character. So, darkness would be all of the actions and the attitudes that reflect fallen, unsaved humanity. Those actions and attitudes that are driven out of a heart of sin. Not every part of our culture would fall into this, but some would. Light 
would refer to the actions and attitudes that would be a reflection of God's character. And so they're in, they are never synchronized. They are always in contrast because God's character is always set against sin. And what's interesting is that this metaphor works out perfectly because normally the acts of our sinful culture are done under the cover of darkness, physical darkness. My dad told me when I was a teenager, he said, son, do you want to know one thing in your life that will probably give you a 95% chance to not end up in jail and not end up ruining your life? Now, often this was said in the context of if you don't stop, you're going to ruin your life, right? But he would say, okay, I'm going to give you one tip that will, that will keep you out of 95% of all of that. Be home by 10 o'clock in the evening. And I thought, man, what an old guy. 10 o'clock, I'm just waking up at 10 o'clock. Right? That's when the fun starts. You know, exactly. Right? And now, here I am a parent, and what am I saying? Be home at 9.30, right? No, is that, is that you look at it and you say, okay, there's so much of that is true. That there is very little, if any sort of productive, righteous, beneficial activity that happens after 10 p.m. Now, not none. Some of you are night owls. And you're like, that's when I study my Bible. That's when I get coffee with somebody. That's when I do my discipling endeavors. You know, that's great. But, but that's not the normal activity that happens in our culture. And, and, and it's just fascinating that through the inspiration of the Spirit, you see these contrasts all around us when God says, listen, unbelievers love the darkness, physical darkness. Why? Because it hides their sin. Why is it that in a place that is conducive for sinful expansion, I'll put it that way, you will find a dark environment? Why is that? I can say it using the metaphor we began with because cockroaches love the hidden places, the dark places. Because a person who is by nature a child of wrath, a person who is by nature darkness, living in the darkness, sin feeds their soul. They're drawn to that. So darkness and light are both the actions and the attitudes that reflect, right, darkness, the sin and the sinful condition of the world, and righteousness, the light and the character of God set at odds with each other. It's also an amazing analogy because if you were to take a science class, you would, define, you would find out that darkness is the absence of light, Right? You don't go into a room and turn, off the, turn on the dark switch. All you have to do is turn off the light. And so, sin, unrighteousness, is the absence of truth. And when the light turns on, we find out very quickly both those who are light and those whom the Father is drawing towards the light. Friend, if you're in darkness this morning, your answer is to turn towards the light of Christ. And so unbelievers evidence their unbelief by love for darkness. And that is revealed to us with four descriptive phrases. Look down at verses 19 and 20. And, and Jesus 
is giving us four descriptive phrases here about what loving the darkness looks like. Because we've been talking kind of in these um, realms of, of, um, uh, of, of things that can be taken one way or the other, maybe. Maybe we would say not concrete examples. And so we actually have four concrete examples for us of what this looks like here in John chapter 3. The first is that those who hate the light and love the darkness are rejectors. They are rejectors of Christ. The light has come into the world. They love darkness rather than light. Those who are living in the, lo- in the darkness and whose life is characterized by the darkness are rejectors of Jesus. The light of Christ has come to fallen humanity to reveal the love of the Father, and yet those who are in darkness turn away. That's why, in order to be saved, you must repent. What does the word repentance mean? It means to turn towards. It means to turn towards Jesus. That when you are in darkness, your back is to Christ. You are a rejecter of Christ. And then once you are saved, you turn towards Christ, accepting him. Rejectors. Christ came, yet the world did not accept him. They rejected Jesus because he revealed the darkness that was in their hearts. Not only are they rejectors, they are evil workers because their works are evil. Here verse 19 tells us. The work that is accomplished by those who love darkness is evil. Isaiah tells us even the plowing of the wicked is sin. That there's nothing that that person can do that is not dark. Everything that they do is dark. Their works are evil. This carries with it the idea that they are performing actions that are meant to accomplish an evil end. Make no mistake, friends. If someone is unsaved in the darkness, their purposes are against the character of Christ. Unbelievers, though they may in some areas reflect morals that the Bible would also teach, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Just because something is kid-friendly does not mean that it is Christian and you can let your guards down, parents. They are rejectors of Christ. They are evil workers. You see this in the New Testament evidenced most clearly by the Pharisees. They take advantage of the weak in order to serve their own interest, even though their actions that may, it may appear to be what is right, in the end their goal is only evil continually. Mark chapter 12. In his teaching, Jesus said the following in verses 38 through 40. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place at honor at the feasts. And you may look at that right away and say, well, these people are seeking selfish ambition. They are seeking selfish honor. They're seeking honor for themselves. They're drawing attention to themselves. Is there something really evil about that? The next phrase clarifies it for us when Mark says, who devour widows' houses for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Here's what Mark is saying. They they are taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable 
in order to pad their own pockets. It's the prosperity gospel today. Just send me $15 and I'll send you a prayer card or send me $200 and I'll send you a prayer blanket and if you pray on it, you'll have more power. And that is a message straight from hell. They devour widows' houses that even their works that appear to be good have an evil end because it it is working against Christ. This phrase also reveals to us another of the main themes of this passage. People's actions are a reflection of who they are and what they love. The reason that unbelievers work evil is because they have no other option. They have rejected God and thus their works are evil. Their end is unbiblical ends. And maybe this application was present on my mind because I have young children in the home. But kids, listen carefully. Parents and grandparents, pay attention. The world is after our children's hearts. In sly ways. Desensitizing to the ways of evil. And so it makes sin appear normal. And may we as parents and grandparents never let our guard down in fencing the home. And recognizing that just because it's a kid's show does not mean that they do not have an agenda to push evil work. Evil workers. Thirdly, haters. Haters. First of all, they are rejectors. Secondly, they're evil workers. Thirdly, they're haters. They hate the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Verse 20. What characterizes those in the darkness is that their life is dominated by hatred. There's no middle ground for the ungodly. When the unsaved person understands the truth that because of their sin they stand in condemnation before God, they will either reject that truth or they will accept their truth. They will not be okay with it. When you witness to somebody and the light bulb goes off in their mind that the message of the gospel means that unless they turn to Jesus alone for salvation, they stand condemned before God in their sins to spend eternity in a place called hell and that the hatred and wrath of God is poured out on them? The darkness does not say, that's nice. They either reject or they accept Now, if you give a watered-down version of the gospel that's not the true gospel, they say, oh, that's really nice that God loves everybody. But a genuine gospel presentation brings the mind, once it's clearly understood, to the point of either hating the gospel or loving the gospel. There is no middle ground. It is a watershed moment. And so, by nature, those who are dark are haters of the gospel. You ever wondered why people can't just ignore Christianity? Like, why do they have to come out against it? You ever wonder that? Why is it that, that in, a, in a situation where perhaps there is a Christian standing for Christian morals and Christian teachings, making a statement somewhere in public, and they're doing it 
hopefully, biblically, in a way that reflects the character of Christ that is loving and kind, full of mercy and grace, but speaking the truth, that people will get in their faces and scream and yell. Why is it that they will drown out the words of Christ? Why is it that people stand contrary to the words of Christianity? Why is that? Because the darkness hates the light. God's children are not characterized by hate. God's children are characterized by love. John 3, 30, 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Friends, make no mistake, spiritually, the unsaved world stands against you. Now, your response is not to be like, you're going to stand against me, I'll stand against you, I'll show you something. No, 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 no. Because by being against you, they're simply rejecting the God that you worship. And so we, we stand with love and kindness, but with truth. Recognizing that no matter how hard they try to drown out the truth, it will not be silenced. Fourthly, they're hiders. Not only haters, but they're hiders. Does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Unsaved people don't want their true intentions, oftentimes, or their true actions to be exposed. They'll go to great lengths to try to keep the truth from coming out. Unbelievers do not come to the light. It's a reminder that unbelievers are not just in need of being pointed in the right direction An unbeliever does not need a road sign to Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to recreate them. Unbelievers are enveloped in darkness. They are lovers of darkness. They are chained in their sin. And so the heart of the Christian cries out in mercy and grace and love that those chains would be freed. They cannot and will not come to God unless something from outside of them first acts upon them. Unless the light pierces that darkness. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so without the working of the Spirit of God on the heart of the unbeliever, he will not come to the light, verse 20. Why? Lest his works be exposed. Not only are they haters of the gospel, they are hiders from the truth. There is one phrase that we have adopted as leadership and as, as, as the church here individually, and that is that the truth needs no defense. We have nothing to hide. If you have something to hide, there's something wrong, Right? We have nothing to hide. We simply side with Scripture. And, and in a conversation, whether it be about ministry philosophy or whether it be about biblical truth or whether it be about actions that flow out of biblical truth, we have nothing to hide. Why? Because the truth's on my side, right? If you have the truth on your side, you go in confident. You enter into the situation saying, all I have to do is tell the truth. But if there's something to hide, that means that error is present, and I must, I must skirt the truth lest the truth be exposed. And there is nothing, we say this often, there is nothing in the Bible that you need to be afraid of. There is nothing in the Bible that you need to hide. There is nothing in the Bible that you need to explain away. Why? Because the unsaved world, they're hiders. 
All we do is expose the truth. Why is it that the light causes them to stay away because it exposes their nature for what it is? It exposes the sin that is not only a part of their life, but is driving their heart. The reason that the unbeliever in his blind and darkened state must stay away from Scripture is because the light reveals his sin and reveals his condemnation. And if I can pretend like that's not true, maybe I can just eat, drink, and be happy. And if I can somehow convince myself that hell isn't real, and that there is no God, which you can't even say that phrase without acknowledging God, if if I can convince myself there is no God, then I can live my life as if there's no God and live in the darkness, and that light ruins everything. Does not want his words exposed. And so John is continually contrasting here Darkness and light, he's given a contrast between the love of the Father and the lovers of darkness, or the lovers of mankind, both darkness and light, as we'll see in a minute. And so he, sta- he makes a statement, unbelievers love darkness, and then the second main point this morning is that believers love the light. Very simple. Simple text, simple, simple outline. Unbelievers love darkness, verse 21, believers love the light. The reason we're using the phrase unbelievers and believers is because that is how John identifies the two camps. The unbelief leads to condemnation. The belief leads to life. And so unbelief is condemned. Those who believe are not condemned. Unbelievers love the darkness. Believers love the light. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true. There's our phrase again. He's linking the belief to actions. If you read your Bible at all, you can't get away from the fact that your belief affects your life. A new person is a new person. Workers of good. I'd like to show you three identifiers, three aspects Three descriptions of those who are saved. Actually, I have four. Strike that. Sorry, you're going to have to line through that in your notes. Four. First of all, they're workers of good. Believers are workers of good. This is in contrast to workers of evil. Rather than using our works to accomplish evil ends, those who are in the light use their works to accomplish good. Rather than taking from the poor, we give. Rather than rejecting the needy, we help. We are workers of good. The ultimate good being the gospel. Recognizing that all attempts to try to fix our culture are doomed to failure before we ever begin. So therefore, we live our lives as gospel bearers. Making a difference for the gospel. Not as an excuse not to be involved in civil good but to use that civil good to bring the light of the gospel. It is not good works that makes a person a believer, nor is it good works, as we heard the testimony and song this morning, nor is it good works that gain you any merit with God at all. Once God has placed his infinite eternal love on you at the moment of salvation, it can't get any bigger. You can't be loved more by God from the moment you're saved for the rest of eternity. Your works don't gain you merit to earn God's love or earn his favor. They are a reflection 
of the light that is inside of you. It is the purpose for which you were saved. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's the entire concept of James 2. That if your faith doesn't have works, it's a dead faith. I don't know how much more clear we can get that good works, works that result in righteousness, are a, are a response and a reflection of the new life in us. Not only are we workers of good, those who are believers are transparent. They come to the light. They are attracted to the light that we have nothing to hide. Friend, if, can I just say this briefly? If you're here and you're living in hidden sin, it's absolutely miserable, isn't it? I mean, I lived that way for years through my high school years and early college years. Years. And it's absolutely miserable. You're constantly on the run, constantly trying to hide, when all you have to do is turn to Jesus, let the light shine on your heart, confess, repent, get right with your fellow brothers and sisters. That when you come to the light, you find grace. And there's nothing. There's nothing. Like reading the Bible with an open heart before God to have that sweet fellowship and communion. That the characteristic of believers is that we struggle with sin, we confess, repent, we get right with God, and we come open to God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill. It can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. What's a bushel? I don't know, but evidently we're not supposed to hide anything under it, right? Um, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. You are a light. You're a city on a hill. God's life in you should be radiating out for all to see. And that's really the third one, that we're examples. That we are transparent. We are workers of good. We are examples. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. An example of righteousness. Not perfect. But every single person in the church should aspire to be an example for the next generation of what godliness is. You're not off the hook. You're not. Just because you've never served in an official capacity doesn't mean you're off the hook to be an example to the believers. And so you aspire to those qualifications. And fourthly, and, and can I say most importantly, in my mind, is that we're joined to Christ. Those last two words in verse 21 are so vitally important. Pastor Ben mentioned it in, in explaining that book about union with Christ. It's so important. And here's what these little two words in God mean. It means that the effort to live the Christian life is you not white-knuckling it and trying as hard as you can in your own accord, but letting the light that's present in your heart shine out. It's cooperation with the Holy Spirit by giving yourselves to the Christian disciplines of Bible reading, prayer, gathering together, of good works, and then recognizing that it's actually the righteousness of God that people see. That, that through your life, all you do is you open up the door of your life and they see Jesus shining out. 
in God, that you are placed inside of Christ so that Christ lives in you. Listen to Paul explain it to the Galatian church. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm living in this way that recognizes that that my responsibility is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in getting myself out of the way. That's what I do, right? I get myself out of the way because I'm bent towards sin. I am so good at sinning. I sin naturally so much. And so my responsibility is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to get that sin out of the way so that the light of God can shine out to others. It's Jesus being seen. It's his righteousness. You say, I don't have very much righteousness. That's okay. He has infinite righteousness in you through the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is get out of the way. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit by living in the light, freeing yourself from sin and letting that light shine out. The power for the Christian life comes from the Holy Spirit as we lay off our sin and let the righteousness of Christ shine out. The focus of these three verses is that because of the darkness in the heart of the unbeliever, they love darkness and will continue to only love darkness unless something from outside of them acts on them, namely to be born again. How can these things be? Nicodemus says. And concurrently, the believer loves the light and is drawn more and more into the light because the light of God is present inside of him. One of the ways that God assures the believer is through the means of grace of the truth of Scripture resonating with your heart. I saw this really, really cool science experiment. I don't, I don't remember all about it because I'm not truly scientific. Many of you are. But it was the basic idea that if you take a tuning fork and you hit that tuning fork so it sounds a certain tune, and you get other tuning forks nearby, they will start to vibrate with that same... That, whatever, level, resonance, there we go. There's a science guy. They will vibrate with that same resonance. And if you put them around them, eventually they all will reverberate together. Do you know what happens when Christians get together and the word of God is on display? Whether it's singing the truth of scripture, whether it's praying through scripture, whether it's reading the scripture, whether it's studying scripture, you know what happens? These tuning forks start to vibrate. And your heart says, yes, yes, that's what I need. God, that's truth. That song resonates in my heart. Like like that truth that he just mentioned in that song or that we just sang together, what it, it, it does is it tunes my heart to the tune of heaven. And I have God's truth that's just resonating through me. And if you think that this was a dead service this morning, maybe it's because you're in the darkness. Maybe it's because there's no tuning fork to resonate. Maybe it's because you need the life of God to wake you up, to be born again, so that when that truth is present, oh, how your heart resonates with that truth. Because that's light and I'm light. And so what flows from our life is that righteousness 
of Christ as we run to the light. And when the light is present, so our heart resonates with that truth. H.A. Ironside was an incredible preacher of the word. He wrote many commentaries. His commentaries are actually his expositions. They're very simple to understand. They're in a little bit of outdated English because he pastored in the early 1900s to mid-1900s. But if you see a book by H.A. Ironside, I would, I would highly recommend it. Often I read his, he preached large portions of scripture and gave expository thoughts. And it's such a blessing to read in your devotions. But uh, he was born in the late 1800s. And in the early 1900s, he got partnered with the Salvation Army. And his ministry really started by... Um, the Salvation Army in the early 1900s in California, specifically where he was in the San Francisco area, they would take out a brass band and they'd start playing the old Salvation Army bands. And they'd play and play and play and they'd attract a crowd. And then it was Ironside's job, even as early as 16 years old, once the crowd was assembled, that they would sing a hymn and they'd play a hymn and then he would give a short gospel message and he would preach. And that began his preaching ministry, later transferring him actually to Moody Church, in Chicago, he retired nearby in Winona Lake. He's an amazing man of God, great preacher. He wrote a little book called Reflections from My Years in Ministry, which I love to read those older men in ministry who've passed on, who wrote down their thoughts and their reflections on ministry. And he recounted a story which I thought went with today's passage just perfectly. He was either pastoring Moody Church, I'm a little bit unclear about exactly when the date was, he was either pastoring Moody Church or it was, it was when he was preaching with the Salvation Army, but during that time period, he had gone back to San Francisco and, and the Salvation Army band was playing, I think it was while he was pastoring, because he walks up on the Salvation Army um, band playing and they actually recognized him, it wasn't one of his official times, they recognized him and said, you're Dr. Ironsides, you're Pastor Ironsides. He said, yeah, that's me. And um, and they said, hey, when we finish playing, would you mind giving the challenge? And so he said, sure. And so they played the band, and it's probably 1930 or so, 1940. And, uh, and they played the band, and, uh, and he, he preached about 15 minutes, gave a gospel presentation. And he, and he gives the account that as he's giving his message, he sees somebody over to the side who's kind of looking at him with a smirk. Not mocking him, but obviously not engaged, not, not at all accepting the truth. And it was about three-quarters of the way through his message that this man pulls out a little card and writes something on the card and holds it. And, uh, and after the gospel presentation, this man walks up to, uh, to Ironside and he says, uh, Hey, I'd like, to read you, I'd like you to read this note. And he gives it to him. And on the note was written the following, Sir, I challenge you to a debate with me the question of agnosticism versus Christianity in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will pay all expenses. And so he actually stops, and, and everybody stays there, and he reads it out loud to the whole group. He says, I will gladly debate. He said, right now I'm scheduled to speak at that time, but I'm sure I could either shorten my message and head over there at 4 o'clock or get someone else to fill my place. I'll gladly debate with you on two I only have two, like, prerequisites, okay? I have two conditions, okay? The first condition is that you find a man to come with you, and the second is that you find a woman to come with you. But they need to be specific. And here's what he said, his own words. 
The first person that you bring with you needs to be a man who was hopeless, an alcoholic, a man who was down and out until he heard you speak on agnosticism. This man needs to be one whose heart and mind, as he listened to such an address, were so deeply stirred that he went away from the meeting saying, henceforth, I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing or, or, or believing that particular philosophy, he found that a new power had come in his life. The sins he once loved, he now hated. And the righteousness and goodness were henceforth the ideals of his life. He was now an entirely new man, a credit to himself and an asset to society, all because he embraced agnosticism. Just find me one. And then he says, my second condition is that you just find one woman. Just one. He was on the road next to a brothel in San Francisco. He says, the second person needs to be a woman who was engaged in a lifestyle of sin, as he gestures down the road. One who lived a life of spiritual poverty and a pursuit of slavery to her evil passions. Find a woman who made a shipwreck of her life through prostitution and corrupt living until she met agnosticism. Her testimony needs to be that the agnosticism is just what I needed to deliver me from the slavery of sin. She followed that teaching until she became an intelligent agnostic. As a result, her whole being revolted against the degradation of the life she had been living. She fled from the den of iniquity where she had been held captive so long, totally rehabilitated. She's won back her way to an honored position in society and is living a clean, happy life all because she's an agnostic. You bring me one man like that. You bring me one woman like that. I'll debate you all the time because I'll have some with me. And he turns to the lady who was in charge of the band and he says, ma'am, how many do you think we could get who've been born again? And she says, at least a hundred. At least a hundred. The man that had debated him put his head down and walked away and refused to debate Ironside. Why? Because when the light comes in, the light changes people. And some of you, I know your stories. Dear church, have that same testimony. That my life was headed here. And when the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to me, and I believed the truth, oh, how God changed me. And friends, that is a power unique to the gospel. It's a power unique to the light. And those who are in darkness because of their nature respond by running from the light, as this man did. But those who are in the light, how their heart resonates with truth. And as God draws them to salvation and they place their faith and trust in Christ, thus they find new life. They find light present inside of them that shines out so that all may see. So the question's simple. Are you in light or are you in the darkness? Here was Ironside's conclusion. Our gospel proves itself by what it accomplishes. I love that. As redeemed people from every walk of life, delivered from the darkness of every type of sin, as we are people of the light, we see proof of the regenerating, keeping power of the light of Jesus Christ in the lives of changed people. And so those that are in the darkness run from the light, and those that are in the light are drawn in as their heart resonates with truth. Friend, if you're here, 
and you're in the darkness, would you look to Jesus? He's the author of your faith, and he's the finisher. Lift it up. Would you behold him? Come to him in faith as the Lord of your life and find the light. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of Scripture as it has been uh, clearly shown on our hearts. Would our hearts resonate and reverberate with the light as it's shown on us. And may we bring that light to a darkened world. 